Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. It is April 7th, 2021. How are you today? Good morning, David. How are you doing this morning? Good. I am David Harper. We're here with my father, Michael Harper. We're going to discuss foreign affairs for our 53rd episode. Is that correct? Episode 53. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe we've made it so far. And uh, our last foreign affairs episode, or the one, two episodes ago, I was actually performing relatively well on YouTube. I think it might be because it had the former Australian Prime Minister's name in it, and he may have people tasked with Googling his name and reading everything about him. I don't think that's a far stretch to believe, correct? Correct. Um, But before we get into today, I want to say this, because we were discussing this yesterday. I am a subscriber to Foreign Affairs. I receive the print edition And we support the magazine financially through our subscription. And these episodes, they're not just to read an article of foreign affairs on the air. Um, The reason that we read the whole article is because we don't want to give you our impression of the article. I mean, we do want to give you our impression of the article. But we don't want our context or our analysis or our bias to creep in. We want the listener or the viewer to have the full context of what was said in the article, and then we want to make it a fair use project by adding our analysis and discussion after the fact. So it's not our interpretation of what happens in the article, it's the article itself. And then it's our discussion, analysis, and next steps, and sort of us trying in real time to understand what's being said and and the action steps that result from that. Because we see in the news a lot that uh, people will make statements, say about the Second Amendment or, or some bill that's being passed, or they says, "Well, have you ever read it?" They go, um, "No." Yes. <laughs> and so uh, we are actually reading it. So this program is not about our opinion only; it's about exactly what these articles are saying, yes, and then what we think about them, so that you can have your own opinion. And. One reason that I like foreign affairs, and I think you've come around to this conclusion as well, is that they get people that are knowledgeable about the subject matter to write about the subject matter that they're knowledgeable in. So if we take a look at today's article that we'll be covering, excuse me, it's called System Failure. America needs a global health policy for the pandemic age. Well, this isn't written by Tucker Carlson or Joe Scarborough. This is written by Ashish Jha. And if you click in, Ashish Jha is the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. I don't know what other credentials he has, but an Ivy League university considered him to be far enough along in his career to be the, become the dean of their college of public health. And so I imagine that he knows a bit more about public health than you or I do. So we are sort of getting a window into his expertise, and we're going to be analyzing it and discussing it in today's video. Because really, if you think about it, everybody has an opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these people's opinions really are based on uh, experience, knowledge, uh, exposure to it, and they've lived it. It's their lives. So they're so close to it that, yeah, it's their opinion and we have opinions too. But our opinion are just are much less informed than these people's opinions. Mm-hmm. And we should listen to people who do have that type of background and expertise. We should listen to the experts. We don't have to believe them all the time, but we should respect uh, their their ability to say what's right, 
uh, and their knowledge and their background and listen to them. Yes. We should always listen <laughs> more mm-hmm. than you talk. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think that was a very good intro to sort of explain why we do these episodes the way we do and to say, yes, we are using foreign affairs <clears throat> as our subject matter for this episode of the podcast, but it's not just reading foreign affairs. It's not like we're, we're adding critical discussion and analysis after the fact when we read each section, and that constitutes fair use. I know that a lot of the things we've done, especially the Movie Tuesday podcasts, you play a clip of the trailer and they'll block your whole video, which doesn't make sense to me. I want to use these episodes of Foreign Affairs to say Foreign Affairs is a great magazine. You should subscribe to it if you're listening. Read it yourself. And this is not obviously paid promotion, but and have discussions like the discussions that we have with someone else who's interested in this subject matter. Because I think you can bat around the ball when it comes to, oh, I watched CNN. Did you see that piece? Did you see the piece on Maddow? Oh, I watched Hannity and he told me this or, or Tucker Carlson saying that. And I believe that your level of analysis that you'll get from going to a source like that is not as robust as the level of analysis you'll get reading a magazine like Foreign Affairs. And David, you had a statement, I forget the person you quoted, which was excellent. Uh, I think it was last time that uh, if a leader lies to you, they're using you. Mm -hmm. They're not leading you. But closely related to that, if you listen to opinion as if there are facts, you will be misled. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about people who are knowledgeable, not people who are trying to earn a buck uh, to get people enraged. Yes, it's true. I mean, how can, like, um, someone who is on the news every night is preaching to their choir. And that could be, you know, if it's MSNBC... They're preaching to um, a liberal, we want to hear this viewpoint. If that's Fox News, they're preaching to a conservative, we want to hear this viewpoint. Ashish Jha is saying, this is what I've learned from being the dean of a public health college at an Ivy League university. And I'm sure that he didn't get that job by never holding a job in healthcare. I'm sure that he knows a thing or two about public health. That's my guess. And he's not saying this to earn a buck. He's saying this to express... An intelligent, informed, educated opinion. Yes, because the goal of a segment on MSNBC or on CNN or on Fox News is to sell advertisements. His goal of writing this article is to say, yes, I am a thought leader on public health, and this is what's going on in the world of public health. And does it matter if you sell commercials off of this or how many clicks this article gets? No, it's let me inform you with my expertise. And I think... and we're not getting any money off of what we're doing reading these things. We're not, we're not, uh, uh, he's not getting any money off of these. Mm-hmm. We're reading them so that we can uh, express uh, a, a knowledgeable opinion. Yes. So shall we get into the article? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. System Failure. America Needs a Global Health Policy for the Pandemic Age by Ashish Jha. 
shared transnational challenges are supposed to bring, oh, let me uh, pull up the text so you can read along if you're watching on YouTube. Here we go. Shared transnational challenges are supposed to bring the world together. The COVID-19 pandemic, however, has done the opposite, exposing the shortcomings of the structures that govern global health. At the start, countries scrambled in a free-for-all for medical supplies. They imposed travel bans and tightly guarded data about the novel disease. The World Health Organization, WHO, after struggling to secure Chinese cooperation, became a scapegoat for U.S. President Donald Trump, who announced that the United States would withdraw from the international health body. U.S. President Joe Biden, promising to break with Trump's retreat to vituperative nationalist politics, has signaled his intent to rejoin the WHO and revive the United States' leading role more broadly. As welcome as those steps are, the Biden administration cannot simply pick up the mantle of U.S. leadership after it was discarded four years ago. Even before Trump's presidency, American primacy and global health governance was ebbing. No one can turn back the clock to the bygone era in which the United States set the agenda. The great health challenges of the 20th century, including HIV, AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis, affected poor countries more than wealthy ones. To address those diseases, the United States embraced a model of global health that resembled patronage providing aid to institutions and countries. Washington shaped the international agenda through funding and its broad sway over multilateral health organizations, chief among them, the WHO. In the 21st century, the United States has contributed about one-fifth of the WHO's budget, much of it earmarked for specific programs that have been high priorities for Washington, including children's health and infectious diseases. Likewise, U.S. bilateral global health funding over the last 20 years, the United States spent $9 billion in 2020 alone, has given Washington overweening influence over the health systems of recipient countries. The outside U.S. role has made it hard for multiple multilateral organizations to function effectively without tacit U.S. support. No doubt the money spent by the U.S. government has done tremendous good, but it has also allowed the United States to unilaterally set international health priorities and define the metrics of success, sometimes at the expense of what, it, of what is actually needed on the ground. But this model is now becoming obsolete. Unlike health threats of the last century, the COVID-19 pandemic has reached nearly every corner of the globe. The United States cannot sit aloof from a troubled world dispensing its benevolence and largesse. It, too, is caught up in the crisis. At the same time, new networks and institutions, including philanthropies, regional organizations, and private companies, now play a major role in addressing health challenges. Western researchers once steered the development of best practices and scientific knowledge in matters of public health. Now, scientists and organizations in the developing world wield influence too. The technological revolution has generated many forms of data that promise to transform the way governments and their health agencies work. As a result, the governance of global health is becoming more decentralized, determined less by Washington's prerogatives than by the combined work of governments, non-governmental organizations, and private actors. In such a world, Washington must reimagine how it can lead. Instead of trying to define the agenda, it must work with other governments, regional organizations, and the private sector to put partnership at the center of its efforts to protect public health. Boom! Section 1 has concluded. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I thought it was very interesting. He set the stage and he set the argument for uh, changing a policy of being a leader to being a collaborator. 
uh, in some cases a facilitator, uh, but we can't uh, do things alone uh, and we can't uh, be a leader like we have been in the past. So that's the setting the stage. It's a very interesting approach and it's an approach that seemed very reasonable uh, from someone, uh, an Ivy League dean, who sees the past, the present, and then projects the future. Mm-hmm. Now, I will also say this idea that you know, by being the main funder, you get to set the table. It it makes sense on some level, right? As yes. the United, as the we we fund one fifth of the WHO's entire budget, and this is the whole world. We we fund twenty percent of it. We should be able to tell them what to do. Um, and yet, I think his point is well taken that uh, we're getting to a point where these emergencies actually happen. A lot of them. Let's say Ebola outbreaks. They happen in Africa. And there's a team of skilled individuals. And they're African individuals. They're, um, and they deal with these issues. And they actually have more experience confronting public health crises than American agencies do. And the citizenry has more experience dealing with public health officials to avoid a catastrophe than Americans do. And outcomes are better. And... I guess the amount of money you put in, it should give you more of a say, but the boots on the ground expertise of some of these other areas also needs to come into effect when table setting, when it comes to setting an agenda. Yeah. Uh, pandemics do not react to money. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they're not directed by the purse. Uh, they're directed by science. They're going to do what they're going to do. And uh, I think he makes a very good point, and you make a very good point, that uh, uh, in other countries, their expertise uh, is better than ours in some uh, areas, and we have to recognize that. And just because you have money doesn't mean a virus or a pandemic or a disease uh, will, uh, will be affected by that. And so we have, to, we have to be aware of that. So should we get into the meat and potatoes? Yep, let's get in the meat and potatoes. Yep. Okay, would you like to read or do you want me to continue? Uh, I can read, I guess. Okay, the center cannot hold. That's the next section. Okay, the center cannot hold. Let me pull this over. The U.S.-led global health order of the past did achieve major victories, with the high water mark being the bid of the George W. Bush administration in 2003 to end the HIV-AIDS epidemic through the program known as the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFIR. Activists capitalized on the moral standing that the United States had gained in the wake of the 9-11 attacks to build an unprecedented coalition with conservative Christian policymakers. They launched PEPFAR uh, with PEPFIR with an initial budget of $15 billion over five years. Since then, Congress has reauthorized the program every five years. Having devoted to date, having devoted to date over $95 billion, it remains the largest commitment of any government in history to address a disease and the largest commitment by the U.S. government to any cause since the Marshall Plan. It has been enormously successful, preventing by one estimate 18 million deaths. But even the PEPFAR marked a seminal achievement in U.S.-led global health policy, it also pointed the way forward to a new world less dominated by the United States. 
PEPFAR adopted multilateral approaches from the outset, working with the UN and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to build the capacities of local health systems around the world. In recent years, PEPFAR has focused its work on 13 countries, and it intends to direct 70% of its future funding to partner organizations headquartered in poor countries, not in the capitals of the West. That change in emphasis is revealing of a broader shift. The United States of the, of the WHO no longer hold total sway over the governance of global health. When the WHO was founded in 1948, there were few other organizations of its kind, but smaller regional organizations now help lead the way in a more interconnected world. The Pan American Health Organization, for example, has funded immunization initiatives and supported health education programs across Latin America. And health agencies in South Korea and Vietnam have led far more effective responses to the pandemic than their counterparts elsewhere. Africa, Africa has seen perhaps the most dramatic progress in coordinating a regional health plan. In 2017, the African Union's member launched the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. When an Ebola disease outbreak began in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 2018, the Africa CDC supported six laboratories that conducted tens of thousands of tests and trained thousands of healthcare workers. As the Ebola outbreak was ending in 2020, the Africa CDC shifted its focus to the COVID-19 pandemic, organizing the region's response and helping distribute medical supplies across Africa. The Africa CDC has actively pushed back against the old Western-centric model of global health. In April 2020, its director, John Nikengazong, refused to sanction a trial in Africa of a tuberculosis vaccine that might offer protection against the novel coronavirus. A French doctor had suggested in a televised discussion that such a vaccine should be tested in Africa because the continent had no masks, treatment, or intensive care, a bit like we did in certain age studies or, the, or with prostitutes. The doctor later apologized, but the implication of Nikin Jisong's refusal was clear. African countries, which have to date managed the pandemic much better than the United States and Western Europe countries, will decide their own health priorities and ensure that medical studies conducted in Africa are led by African researchers in the interests of African peoples. Indeed, in November, 13 African countries launched the Anti-Cove Study, a joint effort to devise treatments for mild to moderate cases of COVID-19 and a bid to keep hospitalization rates down. Meanwhile, in Geneva, the WHO has become an arena for geopolitical competition. As a member organization, the WHO is vulnerable to the power dynamics among, among its member states. And China and the United States in particular have clashed over its decisions. The WHO made the mistake of appeasing China after the outbreak of COVID-19 at the end of 2019, presumably in an effort to gain better access to information about the progress of the disease. The WHO's leaders applauded Beijing's response to the virus 
and overlooked early missteps and the withholding of critical data, sparking outrage in the United States and elsewhere. China has played an increasingly large role in global health in recent years, both through bilateral initiatives, its vast investment project known as the Belt and Road Initiative, includes health infrastructure projects around the world, and through support for multilateral programs. A country of China's size must be engaged in these global efforts, but that engagement is most effective in the service of shared values and a broad international consensus. Ironically, the U.S. decision a few months into the pandemic to withdraw from the WHO only made it harder for the international community to try to hold China accountable. The Trump administration's abandonment of multilateralism played into China's hands. The end of section two. What are your thoughts? Let me just unmute myself. I like to unmute myself when you're reading so that I don't make any noise or I can make noise and no one hears it. I just want to say this and, you know, this is petty, but I think it's no secret that I was not the world's largest Trump supporter. And I just, I find it funny when you read magazines like this, this is not a, a liberal journal, but that when you have an expert on some area, they say, well, at least in our area, Trump's decisions were bad. <laughs> and that's sort of what he's saying. Um, there's this reactionary drive to sort of retreat from a global organization because you feel like, well, they gave preferential treatment to China. We're just going to pull all of our funding from that multilateral organization. Um, but that sort of leaves a vacuum where China becomes one of the largest contingencies within that. And so they have more power overall. You stop being a balance to their power if you stop participating in multilateral organizations. Now, I think there's no question that there was a lack of transparency coming from the Chinese government during the initial phases of the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak. Now, using that as a reason to pull away from multilateral institutions, especially multilateral institutions where we largely were able to set the agenda for many years, was a bad strategic move. Now, I also liked in this section, this is sort of what I was alluding to because I've read the article before, that in Africa, European nations come in and they try to bully around African health authorities. And that might have worked 50, 60 years ago. But these people are publishing research. They're handling public health threats on the ground. And they have a large and sophisticated organization. And when someone comes in with this colonialist idea, oh, let's just test out some unproven thing on the Africans. The African health authorities have the wherewithal to say, no, like we got this. We understand how to administer public health, perhaps more than you do in Western Europe. And I think that the, like what he was saying is the numbers in large part bear that out. And that's respectable. So you, I don't think that you should I guess what he's saying is you shouldn't conduct public health based on stereotypes of 50 years ago, racist stereotypes. You should conduct it based upon the model on the ground. But that belies the fact that there needs to be public health administrators all over the globe that advocate for their regions. And that doesn't mean not participating in the global milieu of public health, but it means advocating for your region as well. So well, when you think of when you think of that section altogether, uh, the the impression I got was that 
he's not talking about Trump. No. He's talking about the decisions Trump made and how they affect uh, the the area that he is an expert in. He's talking about the decisions that they were bad and also talking about the the juxtaposition of politics uh, versus health mm-hmm. and public health. That's what he's talking about. And so a lot of people say, oh, he hates Trump. No, he's not really talking about Trump at all. That's true. Or Biden or or any president or any country. He's talking about the effects their decision make on the health. And that's what he's interested in. And his arguments are all from his perspective. And I think he says it very well. And he's not really trying uh, to make political statements or even to avoid political. He's not trying to avoid political statements. He is avoiding political statements. <laughs> yeah. it's, he's not trying. He is. Uh, he's doing it. He's, he's just saying uh, from a, a scientific public uh, policy background th- or public health background, this is the decisions hurt this area. And this is how we're moving forward. And this is what we need to do. So his he's being true to the title of his of his essay a paper here. And uh, and by being true to that, uh, he's he's addressing things that support it and addressing things that don't support it. Yes, I think that you have a really, really good point, because I see, you know, he says from a public health perspective, the decision to pull out of a multilateral organization where you were the dominant figure only bolstered your adversary's sway within that multilateral decision-making body. That's all he's saying. He's saying, this was the decision you made. This is the effect of that. And I think that my brain that's sort of been rewired from watching too much news says, yeah, he thinks Trump's an idiot. But you're not, like, what your point is very good. He's not commenting on Trump. He's saying there was a decision made, and that decision had the opposite effect of what was intended. That decision was intended to sort of show that we're independent and we have this power. But what that decision did was gave our adversary more power. Yes, but the power, uh, we've been, as you say, we've been continuing to think, oh, China had more power. So we're thinking of the political power that they had in the WHO. Mm-hmm. He's talking about the 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 uh, power they have in WHO to have policies that are not good health uh, policies. Yes, that allow them to cover up cover anything up that they may do wrong. Things they did wrong. And, and also uh, to dictate from one perspective. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, look, uh, our, our health perspective needs to say, uh, empower every uh, country, empower the countries where they under, they're doing research. And it's not like 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, we have very smart people everywhere, researchers everywhere, people who know what's happening, people who are learning what's happening. And just because someone in Africa is learning something and we don't know it here, then we say, well, we have to respect that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, uh, to me, that's my takeaway for what he's saying. And so I can't wait to see uh, how he, now he sets the stage that there's a problem, this is what has happened, uh, here's what needs to be done, and I think it's going to start going into here's uh, here's how here's here's reasons why we need to move in, in a certain direction. Yes, I do think so. But I'm actually looking at the next heading and I'm fascinated to read this because we spoke about this yesterday. And I think I had this article on my mind because I read it. Uh huh. This next section is going to be about Bill Gates. 
But the, but yes, again, it's not really. Well, I ha I haven't read it, so let me just throw out there mm -hmm. what I'm going to be looking at is is he really talking about Bill Gates, or is he talking about well what Bill Gates is doing in this area and what effect it has in his in the thesis of his paper here? Well, I think uh, it's, it's or both. It's it's both. It's also I guess his point is Bill Gates has an outsized influence in public health. Bill Gates has chosen to use his individual wealth and sort of funnel a ton of it into public health initiatives. And it's not just like you or me writing a $500 check to public health. <laughs> this is, in terms of state actors, Bill Gates' contribution is second only to America. He's putting more money into public health than the Chinese government. And so it's rare because never in history has a single entity, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, had so much sway over what gets done. And it's it's fascinating, and it sort of changes the dynamic because we think about dynamics. Like, what if Jeff Bezos had a private army that was bigger than China's army but just a little bit smaller than America's army? Well, I think the global security calculations would be different. And, I mean, if you take, like, for militarily, the global security calculations would be different. And Jeff Bezos uses his private army to make sure that Amazon's packages arrive on time. Uh, you know, local or international customs offices be damned. You know, he's got a fighter jet to accompany this overnight delivery. Um, there would be implications to that. And of course, that's, if, a, that's an extreme. If that happens. If that happens, that's happens. an extreme example. But what if an individual had as much sway, more sway than every single European nation, more sway than every single Asian nation in terms of the dollars they're donating to the public health? Uh, problem. That's that's what Bill Gates is doing. He's well. Let's let's see what the article says. Let's see what he has to say about it. The rise of the <coughs> philanthropists, another powerful force remaking the governance of global health, is the growing role of private and non-governmental actors. The launch of the Gates Foundation in 2000 marked an important shift away from a model of global health centered on government action. In its first year of operation, the foundation spent $1.5 billion, orders of magnitude more than what any other organization of its kind had ever spent. The seismic impact of the Gates Foundation can be seen in a massive increase in global health spending, including at the WHO. The organization's budget grew from less than $1 billion in 2000 to nearly $6 billion in 2020. In 2018, the Gates Foundation was the second largest funder of the WHO after the U.S. government. The Gates Foundation has used its financial muscle to drive improvements in vaccinations and other life-saving therapies for the world's poor. A private philanthropic organization having this much influence represents a sea change in global health. Beyond philanthropies, a new kind of public-private partnership has arisen to address neglected problems at a time when many countries are struggling to provide basic health care to their citizens. Indeed, the cost of developing effective measures to fight the future pandemics is prohibitively high for any individual countries. But all countries benefit from the preparations of one. In 2017, a collection of private donors, pharmaceutical companies, and the national governments launched the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI. 
And CEPI, or CEPI, I'll just call it CEPI, directs resources to develop vaccines against highly contagious diseases. The group has helped address some of the biggest challenges in pandemic preparedness, ones that were difficult for the WHO to tackle on its own. CEPI has supported the development of vaccine platforms, technologies that can be quickly adapted to create vaccines for new diseases. It has sought to broker deals between private pharmaceutical companies and vulnerable nations to ensure that greater access to vaccines during outbreak. In 2019, for instance, CEPI helped deploy experimental Ebola vaccines in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In 2020, with the pandemic raging, CEPI collaborated with Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, a public-private global health partnership, and the WHO to launch COVID-19 vaccine global access facility, known as COVAX, an effort to distribute effective and safe vaccines to countries otherwise unable to procure them. As of January 2021, COVAX had over 180 participating countries, but not the United States, which joined Belarus, Russia, and a handful of island states in declining to join the initiative. In keeping with Trump's America First foreign policy, this decision was one of several, marking the administration's position of vaccine nationalism, in which Washington saw the United States' health interests as part of a zero-sum contest with other countries. Under Trump, the United States stood mostly alone in approaching vaccines for COVID-19 as a matter of purely national importance. Meanwhile, the rest of the world, with China playing a prominent role, has participated in multilateral initiatives to help distribute COVID-19 vaccines. Entities such as the Gates Foundation, CEPI, and COVAX have not made the United States or the WHO irrelevant. Far from it. But in a world of increasingly diffuse power, no single player can drive the global health agenda. This is largely a good thing, and it provides the United States an opportunity to engage as a partner rather than as a patron, encouraging collective action and countering parochial nationalism. Wow, very interesting. So I also think this is uh, fascinating to me because you have these organizations like CEPI and COVAX. And if you don't know this world, you may not know what non-governmental actors are actually important. And he's saying, oh, the Gates Foundation, CEPI, COVAX, these are organizations doing real work that augment or supplement the work of the WHO, augment or supplement the work of national governments. Now, I'm sure that if you're wealthy, a lot of fly-by-night non-governmental organizations sort of propped up during COVID. Oh, we're here to help solve this problem. Donate to us. You know, but you may not actually have access to the reins of power. It's interesting to know what players are on the ground that are respected by a university dean in public health. Because, uh, I mean, non-governmental organizations are a dime a dozen, but there's only a few that are actually there with their boots on the ground, you know, making progress and augmenting or supplementing the work of, of governments and, and the big ones. Well, I, my, my takeaway on this or my, my impression as he was talking about uh, the, the, the different uh, organizations is what impacted me was collaboration. Uh, it's not it's not a zero sum game, as he mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, that they support each other. They help each other. They coordinate between one another. And so they have a common goal. And that common goal is health. Uh, it's their common goal is not uh, try to be better than the next guy. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not a zero sum game. It's not it's not WHO first or CEPI first. It's not the United States yeah. first, like the United States was. It's not a zero sum game. They they collaborate. They help each other. They support one another because they have a common goal, and that is health and a common common enemy disease. Mm-hmm. And they're at, they're at, they want to help people. They're not going to make themselves look good. They want to help other people. And that that's my takeaway from that. Uh, but he does set the stage. Uh, the other thing I noticed, I noticed the next section is knowledge is power. But the, when I was looking at this, he said, you know, uh, these other countries are are that participate together, uh, coordinate their ability uh, to really help uh, the people of their country, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, some some countries don't. Uh, but a lot of the countries do. And I'm looking at this I'm, and my impression, again, very strong is that, you know, there is very, very smart people all over the world, anywhere. And just because you have a poor nation doesn't mean there's not really, really intelligent people in there trying hard with limited funds, trying to do something. And they are doing things. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, along with I think even the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has done this also along with health care. I would also like to see education mm-hmm. where people can understand about what a vaccine is and how and not political information only, but looking at the health information from a health perspective to know this is what we need to do to stay healthy and, and to promote our, our culture and our civilization and our society. And I would like to see that. And I think Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has done that. But I to me. I think that is something that would go hand in hand with these different initiatives to improve the health of of all countries, mm-hmm. rich and poor, uh, but also to increase the education of all countries, rich and poor. Education should be should be free and everyone should have the opportunity. Uh, everyone should have as a human being, you should have the right to learn as much about what's happening around you as you can. That, that's my soapbox. But I saw that embedded in uh, in his his uh, article here when yeah. he was talking about the different people working together. And he may get into that in the knowledge is power section. But I do. Say, yeah, I think you're right. These uh, non-governmental public-private partnership organizations, they're hyper-specialized. And the WHO can't have a vaccine distribution wing or a vaccine development wing to stock up on organization where you go to work and everyone around you is a vaccine development specialist or you go to work and everyone around you is a vaccine distribution specialist as opposed to these overarching huge organizations that's why organizations like CEPI or COVAX need to exist because you need the top minds from all over the globe on this niche issue to sort of decide, okay, this is the best way to do it. Now, if you're in the WHO, you might have some bureaucrat or some administrator say, well, I know that our experts are telling us this, but wouldn't it be better if we did it this way? And so you, when you have specialized organizations, I think maybe sometimes you, the leaders, if they are vaccine distribution specialists, they're not a bureaucrat. You know, they weren't appointed from Brussels or, or Washington, D.C. or Beijing. They say, oh, well, this is the best way to do it. And then they advocate for the correct course of action because they have fewer, their loyalty is to what's the most efficient way to uh, distribute vaccines. That's their loyalty. Sort of like this guy writing about public health. His loyalty is 
what were the public health moves that were wrong? What were the public health moves that were right? It's not shaming someone for doing something wrong. It's saying, well, you chose this and the outcome was not what you expected. And I think that that's one good reason to have these specialized organizations and not expect the WHO or the CDC to, to handle everything when it comes to a, a pandemic. Point, point very well taken, David. And if I can draw an analogy that may not be as good as I think it is, but I'll draw it anyway, since we're talking, is that the point you made was extremely well taken by me that when you bring when you go to work and everybody around you are, are, are specialists in in in, in uh, uh, vaccines or specialists in distribution and uh, you're going to get things done. Mm-hmm. You bring common people together with a common focus and they're going to get things done. And we have seen that uh, the uh, at Los Alamos National Laboratory during World War II, they brought people from all over the world in nuclear science. Mm-hmm. And so you went to work and you went to work. You didn't wear a suit. You know, you checked in, but you just wore your clothes and you just sat down there. And the, the scientists and the technicians and the staff, and they, they all work together and they work together with a common goal. And during those those uh, the, the years that were there, that was not like 24 months, they had over a dozen to two dozen significant scientific breakthroughs. Now, whether you agree with nuclear medicine or not, the scientific break- breakthroughs were significant. Before that, before 1940, we had significant scientific breakthroughs once every 50 years. Mm-hmm. We had like over a dozen within a 22-month period. And so when you bring those people together, like these organizations are for health reasons, you're going to see results. Yeah. And I think that's what he... That's what uh, uh, Anish is saying, uh, seeing and saying. And I totally agree with that because history bears it out. Mm-hmm. Like if you get the top guy in a field and you say, okay, you get a staff, try to do your best, but he'll show up to work and say, no one's going to know more about this than me. So no matter what I do, I'll be the top dog. If you get the top 10 guys, top 20 guys in a field, and you put them all into an organization, they're going to start competing against each other and say, well, if I don't work harder, if I don't bust my butt, I'm going to get beaten to the, I'm going to get scooped on the next discovery by these people that are working hard to discover the same things. I am. So there's a collaboration, there's competition, but sort of bringing great minds on a subject matter together will produce the best results for that subject matter. Well, I, I would, I, I, I know what you're saying and I pretty much agree with it. I would change one word. I wouldn't say competition. When I was at Los Alamos, there was no competition. Uh, they was they were they were uh, empowering each other. We fed off of each other. They say, "No, you're wrong. I think it's this way." Oh, really? Tell me why. Okay. Yeah, I see that. Okay, maybe together we can do it this way. And so, no one person's idea really rose to the to the top. Mm-hmm. It was one person's idea, supported by another person's, by another person's, and we all changed toward one goal. And so it's the collaboration of scientists because they're not there to toot their own horn. Mm-hmm. They're not there to make themselves look good. They're not there to get elected another term. They're there to solve a fo- focus on solving one problem. And they, they collaborated and they coordinated and they and they fed off of each other. So you know more about that than I do, but what about this? Yeah, that's true. 
And so uh, when you have a team together and you achieve uh, a result, it's not done by one of those persons. It was done by all of them. Yes. Because you feed off of each other. And that's exactly what, that's why you need these kind of organizations, because you'll feed off of each other. And there's where results come, because humans are, are, are most valuable when they're with other humans <laughs> learning together and producing things together. That's the most power of human potential. Yes. And that's I, why and that's why I, I dislike suppressing anyone uh, for an idea. Uh, as long as they're uh, willing to have it corrected. When I was working there, nobody, no one idea went all the way through. Mm-hmm. It was always modified by people who really knew what they were talking about. So knowledge is power. That's basically what you just said. Yep. Um, do you want this next section? Okay. Knowledge is power. As global health leadership has become decentralized and less reliant on the West, so too as medical scholarship. Advocates for decolonizing global health have long pointed to the disproportionate share of Western authors featured in global health journals, studies, and reviews. Researchers and practitioners in poor countries that bear the greater burden of disease are often sidelined, but times are changing. Hooray. <laughs> there's, I'm sorry, there's, let me, oops say, uh, sorry, David, uh, I, 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 uh, there's smart people everywhere. There's not smart people just in the West in the West. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, editorializing, but times are changing. Cutting edge health and pharmaceutical research increasingly takes place outside the West. Chinese scientists who studied in the United States now run large, well-funded laboratories in China that are driving the next generation of scientific breakthroughs. Similar pioneering work is taking place in Southeast Asia and increasingly South Asia. In the years to come, African and Latin American scientists are poised to join their counterparts elsewhere in driving research forward. Non-Western researchers are more often leading global health studies, particularly those presented in open access publications. Scholarship available to all for free. A 2019 analysis of medical research conducted in Africa, an area long dominated by Western scholars, found that 93% of infectious disease studies had at least one African author and nearly half had an African lead author. As education and scientific capacity in the developing world improve, knowledge and best practices increasingly flow from poor countries to wealthy ones, bucking old colonial dynamics. Private enterprises have also helped reshape the public health landscape in developing developing countries. The health technology company Boabab Circle, for instance, has introduced a popular app in sub-Saharan Africa that allows users to track their exercise, diet, and mental health and access online consultations with physicians. In Egypt, the startup TakeStep helps recovering addicts through telemedicine, allowing them to schedule appointments with counselors, psychiatrists, and clinicians. The Ugandan startup, Matibabu, has pioneered a device that can rapidly diagnose malaria infection, the cause of 1 million deaths globally per year, 
without requiring a blood sample. In India, Healthians delivers at-home tests for many diseases to rural communities that lack easy access to hospitals and clinics. Medicus AI, a company founded in Dubai, has designed an app that uses machine learning and artificial intelligence to explain complex medical diagnosis through user-friendly visualizations and recommendations. The proliferation of technology-driven startups of this kind points to a new challenge in global health, managing the reams of health data that governments, healthcare providers, and private companies produce. How data are generated, governed, and ultimately used will be the defining issue of global public health in coming decades. Authoritarian countries have already started monitoring and controlling their populations by exploiting various data streams. Increasingly, multinational corporations are tapping into private data sources to build sophisticated models that will allow them to identify and respond to disease outbreaks. Yet government agencies in democratic countries are struggling to determine how best to use these data without violating ethical standards and legal protections. Worried about privacy, they have proved reluctant to utilize the data sets held by private companies. As a result, they have missed out on the huge potential for data-driven approaches to public health, ceding the field to authoritarian governments and private industry. Fortunately, the coronavirus crisis may compel a reevaluation of this approach as the contrast between the inadequacy of conventional public health data streams and the effectiveness of the tools available to autocratic regimes and private parties become apparent. Consider how China has responded to the pandemic in addition to imposing lockdowns more rigid than those feasible in democratic countries. China deployed a surveillance system that uses various relatively new technologies, including location tracking, facial recognition, and QR codes that allow citizens access to public spaces only if they aren't sick. In the early stages of the pandemic, for instance, the local government of Hangzhou uh, introduced an app that assigned users a color code to indicate their health status. Only those with a green code, a clean bill of health, could enter subways, malls, and other public spaces. The app was decidedly opaque and evasive. Users, most of, you, most of whom had not been tested for COVID-19, had no idea how determinations about their health status were made. And the app appeared to report users' locations and other personal information to the police. It was as if the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States had used Facebook to track suspected COVID-19 patients and then quietly shared their user information with the local sheriff's office. However, disconcerting this approach, however, however disconcerting this approach was from a private privacy perspective, it also allowed China to rapidly contain the virus. Many Western countries, by contrast, continue to, to struggle to do so, in part because they are reluctant to resort to such invasive apps. The United States has lagged behind its European peers in gathering and sharing relevant data, including contact tracing data 
and genomics analysis. And only a handful of U.S. states have enabled mobile phone contact tracing capabilities. There are some signs of progress. The state of California have, has pioneered a COVID-19 exposure notification system that safeguards privacy by protecting users' identities and blocking their locations. Facebook and Google have deployed powerful tools for monitoring and responding to the pandemic, including community mobility data, analyzing anonymous data of the movements of people in the community, and symptoms maps, tracking users' reports of COVID-19 symptoms on social media. But the federal government remains missing in action. If the United States does not lead the implementation of mainstreaming uh, and mainstreaming of these technologies, the country will be forced to choose between meeting future health challenges blindfolded and adopting approaches developed by authoritarian governments that do not share U.S. constitutional values. Wow. And that's the end of that section. Wow. That was a big section. Um, I do think that some of that section, and we do offer critical analysis of these, I mean, was in some ways, what's going on with Ashish Jha? What's going on in public health? What is he excited about? Because I do think that he started the section saying, look at this, publications in open source journals about Africa, they have more African authors than they used to. I think that excites him. I think public health scholarship is coming out of Southeast Asia, out of South Asia, out of Africa. And the next you know, decade, we're going to see more Latin American-led public health research. And I think that the, the relevance of that to the current crisis, I don't know. I, maybe I don't have a long view. I don't see, you know, scholarship being relevant to today, even though scholarship of 30 years ago is relevant to today. You know what I mean? You have to take a long view to see how does scholarship play today. If they hadn't done mRNA research in the 80s and the 90s, in the 2000s, we wouldn't have vaccines today. And that mRNA research was funded by scholarship. You see what I'm saying? So he's saying it's good that more of the world is getting involved in publishing papers, doing research, that you're seeing more African authors on papers and seeing more South Asian authors. on. But I also think that's sort of from his perspective as an academician, he thinks that's important. Um, then he goes on to the apps that are being developed in developing countries to track people's health. And then he goes on to the authoritarian governments are using these data streams to come up with effective means of containing the virus. Now, our freedoms preclude the government from using those data streams, but we need to realize that it's time to sort of figure out a way to meld privacy with the immense amounts of data that we have on people and sort of move forward or else we're going to have to use Facebook solution or the Chinese government solution. And neither one is going to be ideal for Americans. Right. Yeah. My, my take, my takeaway here, again, a critical, uh, it may be critical, may not, maybe he would agree is that you can't, uh, I guess a statement would be, you can't really separate actions that have simply a health initiative from the political aspects because you're dealing with people. Mm -hmm. Because there are political aspects to this. If you give access 
to people's locations and health and, and, and information personally uh, to a country, to a political entity, a political unit, uh, it can be misused. And uh, say, yes, but health-wise, they can be healthy, but also they that information uh, can be used to suppress people. Uh, th- I'm not saying that that is said in there or, or people are doing it. I'm saying the potential exists. And uh, there are smart people everywhere, all across the world, uh, rich and poor. But there's also bad people everywhere. <laughs> and uh, people will misuse the information. And so you're right, David, your point is well taken. We have to start balancing uh, the, the security issues with the health issues because they're just as important. Because, uh, yeah, the people are healthy, but they're suppressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, 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 can, it can undermine the health of a person if it undermines their, their ability to live in a society that is going to uh, allow them to be who they want to be yeah. uh, or who they need to be or who they should be. So there, there are two issues here. You can't disengage it. And so you're right. Uh, one criticism, he is focusing just on the health issues, and that's good. That's his, and he should. Uh, but in the bigger picture, you can't separate it completely uh, from the uh, politics. And uh, But also, uh, when you look at health and politics, that should not be a zero-sum game. Uh, again, you should be able to, to uh, coordinate those to have a win-win kind of a situation. And I think that's exactly what you were saying about combining the security with the health issues. Yes. I mean, I think that the end was spot on in terms of the pandemic. I think the early stuff is stuff that's on his mind as a dean of a public health school at a university. So the early, stu- the early stuff in that section was we're getting equity in terms of the representation of scholarship in published journals. How that mm-hmm. relates to coronavirus, I don't know. And then also, if you look at the developing world, apps are being developed, applications that track people's heart rate and EKG. And isn't that good? Yeah, it's good. But how does it – I think those are things that are on his mind as a public health administrator. As these apps get developed, as people implement them, you will have a bigger stream of data. That data belongs to a private company. It belongs to – let me go back and see some of these names that I've never heard of. Medicus AI. It belongs to Take Step. It belongs to Healthy End. It belongs to Baobab Circle, not to public health agencies. So, you know, if you develop these apps to track your health, there's going to be a lot of data in the hands of these private companies. And right. then he makes the leap. Look at China. China has the ability to basically hardwire into every single one of their citizens' phones and restrict them from movement, restrict them from freedom on a very opaque and poorly defined a set of criteria. I mean, it's probably well-defined on the back end, but as a client facing, oh, I'm in the red. I can't get on this train. Oh, I can't go to work. I can't go into this public square because I'm in the red. Oh, I'm getting arrested for going out of my house. Why? And China's not going to explain it to you. And so I guess his final point is the United States needs to sort of find a way to marry our love of privacy with our embracing of this health data that's coming in in droves Because if we don't, we're going to wind up in a situation where we enter the next crisis blindfolded or we're forced to adopt solutions coming from the private sector or China. And that would be 
disadvantageous to us. That's a good wrap up. That's a good summary. I think that's exactly your spot on as far as I'm concerned. That, again, like as you said, looking at it from this perspective of where you stand is from where you sit or where you sit depends on where you stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you stand depends on where you sit, whatever. He's a dean. Yeah. He's an academician. And he's looking at it from that perspective, which is extremely healthy and extremely necessary. Uh, however, if you have a politician looking at this uh, or you look at a healthcare worker and get this, it's going to mm-hmm. be very different. If, you, if this were written by the head of the CDC, the right. scholarship equity part wouldn't be in there. The scholarship right. equity part's in there because he works at a university and that's top of mind. Yeah. And, and I, work, I work at a university too and it's <laughs> all important. But uh, you have to be very careful that you don't have uh, one view. You have to have a mul- multiple views. Mm-hmm. So next section, are we ready? Yes. From patron to partner. After decades of setting the global health agenda and almost single-handedly funding key global health goals, the United States must adjust to being a partner in a broader, more decentralized system. This new partnership model should be understood as the inevitable result of long-term shifts, including the growing importance of private enterprise to public health, the increased role of China as a global power, and the decolonialization of global health policy as more authority and resources are afforded to poor countries. Washington should not simply dwell on its long-standing and influence in the area of global health governance. Instead, it should enthusiastically play a central and constructive role in this new order, working with a diverse set of partners to reform global health in ways that are consistent with American values. As a first order of business, the United States must renew its commitment to the WHO. This does not mean that Washington should refrain from criticizing the WHO. Indeed, reform of the organization, including encouraging the body to adopt narrower, more focused agenda and granting it greater budgetary discretion to respond to emerging threats must be a top priority of the Biden administration. But criticism will be meaningless without the credible assurance that the United States will work to help the WHO succeed rather than simply walk away when the going gets tough. Some argue that the WHO has become obsolete in the increasingly decentralized public health system, its consensus-based leadership cumbersome by comparison to ad hoc associations of countries and private entities. But in truth, the WHO is like a Rorschach test, with each of its different constituents seeing in it a different agency that should prioritize different goals. For wealthy countries, for example, the WHO represents an opportunity to shape the global health agenda and keeps disease outbreaks at bay. For less wealthy countries, the WHO is a lifeline providing crucial technical assistance and helping eliminate diseases such as polio. Too often, the WHO tries to be all things to all countries, ensuring that that it is effective in few of the objectives it pursues. A clearer, more streamlined set of responsibilities would allow the WHO to build stronger capacities, to monitor infectious disease outbreaks, and share critical health data among countries. Having a more coherent agenda would help the organization secure more stable funding. The WHO must do the things that only it can do, including setting shared global health norms and targets, and coordinating responses to transnational health threats, Its leadership, with full input from its member states, must ensure that such reforms aren't merely cosmetic. They must recast the WHO to meet modern challenges. The United States should not make the WHO a battleground of geopolitical competition with China. 
Instead, it should encourage the organization to adopt higher standards in several crucial areas, including data transparency. New data streams are essential to building modern surveillance systems for disease outbreaks. For instance, in 2020, using mobile phone data, investigators highlighted the role of informal cross-border migration in the transmission of malaria in Bangladesh. The WHO must recognize both the importance of these kinds of data and the necessity to shape the norms around their use. The body's current approach relies more on more traditional data sources and methods of modeling disease that are inadequate to prepare for the current threats. Indeed, the assessments the WHO had made before COVID-19 of various countries' pandemic preparedness were often completely wrong. Some of the ostensibly best prepared countries, notably the United States, have had the worst responses to COVID-19. Beyond the WHO, the United States should invest in the growing diversity of the global health governance ecosystem. By supporting new public-private entities, it should help fill niche gaps by for example, supporting the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics, which develops new diagnostic tests for diseases that may spark pandemics and allow the WHO to concentrate on a limited set of core competencies. Washington should expand its global health partnerships with entities such as the Africa CDC to improve public health in the developing world, promote American soft power, and strengthen the ability of poor countries to respond to disease outbreaks. A top priority of U.S. global health investments must be building the capacity of researchers and public health leaders in the developing of world through pre-publication pre support, offering advice and technical assistance to researchers, research partnerships, data sharing, and policy collaboration as peers. And the United States must help ensure that the information generated by the technological revolution, much of it in private hands, can be used for the good of public health without infringing on democratic values and individual rights. In the 20th century, global health challenges were rarely truly global. Instead, they were typically confined to particular countries or regions. But in the 21st century, threats to health affect the entire world. The United States needs to recognize that the centralized approach to global health that dominated that it dominated and the WHO managed is no longer viable. The era of U.S. agenda setting may have ended, but that only increases the importance of U.S. leadership. In years past, American priorities inevitably shaped global health. Today, if the United States wants future global health initiatives to reflect its values, it must collaborate with others and seek to lead through partnerships. And that is the end of the article. I think that was a very good summary. I think he did a very good job. Yeah, me too. It's a very good summary. And... Uh, the points extremely well taken. Uh, the the concept of uh, the WHO is a World Health Organization, and uh, his point uh, to me, uh, from what I get, it's very well taken that uh, when you talk about actual health measures, that needs to be regional, mm -hmm. and the World Health Organization needs to think, rethink how it does things so that it coordinates regional impact on health to where it supports it uh, from not dictating, uh, but also collaborating and also maybe uh, uh, enabling uh, different regional areas and societies mm -hmm. to advance. It's like when uh, Michael Scott and Jim Halpert are co-managers in the office and Jim Halpert handles the day-to-day -day stuff and Michael Scott handles the big picture stuff. 
well, these regional consortiums, these CEPIs or COVAXs, they're like Jim Halpert. They're the day-to-day. WHO is more like Michael Scott, the broad, big-picture stuff. So how should people's data be handled? How should we transfer data from these huge private firms like Facebook or Google or Apple? You know, they have your watch, they have your EKG, they have all your health information. That could be a gold mine for public health, for people tracking public health. If in the future everyone's wearing a fitness watch and you can tell when they start to get a fever, you can warn them, you can warn public health officials. You know, you can say, oh, you should go get a test. These people have been flagged for tests. Um, but, you know, where does privacy end and technology begin? That's another big question. And the WHO might be an uh, instrument for saying there should be global standards. You shouldn't be able to lock someone up for no reason because algorithmically they were chosen to be a threat to public health. I mean, there has to be some sort of standard and some sort of reasonable degree of privacy. And like he said, one of the failings of the WHO is it tries to be all things to all people. If you're a small member state that has a failing public health system, the WHO is your crutch. You know, we're going to provide uh, the things that you can't provide for yourself. And maybe that needs to be the purview of some other organization. You know, maybe the WHO needs to be an organization that focuses on grand public health strategy. And that gets sort of delineated to smaller organizations that can be more effective and active on the ground. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the uh, world part of the health organization uh, has to be very careful that they don't, uh, the members of that uh, and the decisions from the WHO should not support uh, the stronger members. It should should report, should support all of them and have compromise and coordination to help on the health side. And so unfortunately the world side, uh, a little bit more, I think he was saying is a little too political uh, to where, uh, for example, like uh, the uh, uh, he was saying that uh, the preparedness uh, of the pandemic uh, in the United States uh, had worse responses than the the locals mm-hmm. uh, areas uh, because it's it's well for the whatever reasons why uh, the health part of it cannot be dictated by the world politics of it and I think that's what he's trying to say I, I and think- I think you said it you said it very well. I think, and this is my guess, this is not fact, I'm just, you know, the WHO said that the U.S. was in the best position to handle this, and that's because the U.S. had the most ventilators, the U.S. had the most access to therapeutics, the U.S. had the purchasing power to buy any PPE that it may need, and therefore, the U.S. is going to handle this better than anyone. But what, what those assessments don't count for is, there's a bunch of morons in the U.S. running around with their masks on their chins in Walmart coughing on me. And that doesn't happen in other places. I mean, I think that pride in not following the rules isn't as much of a cultural thing in Osaka as it is in Des Moines. Absolutely right. What they don't see is the people mm-hmm. uh, and the societies. Which is another reason why you have to have more power uh, on how to implement these things, implement health measures locally and empower the local people because they know how these things should and can be employed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, also the United States, they did do a good job with vaccines. I think we are doing a good job with vaccines. I mean, I got my first dose and uh, 
that puts me ahead of a lot of the world. And mm-hmm. I'm sure there's at-risk populations throughout the world, people over 65, that haven't gotten their vaccine and I've gotten mine. That, is that fair? Not necessarily, but that's just the way it is. And I think saying it's just the way it is is what Ashish Jha is saying at the end of the article in a different respect. And this is sort of, it applies more broadly to foreign affairs. The United States, after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, was the sole superpower. They could do a lot of agenda setting. They would lead international organizations and say, this is the way things are going to go. Now, he's saying in the 21st century, global health is truly global, and we need to become a collaborator, a partner, not a patron. I think that applies to a lot of international affairs, but maybe perhaps more especially to public health, where we do need to take a global approach to this stuff. We can't be insular, and by working with everyone, we may affect better public health outcomes, um, not only in America, but throughout the globe. And it's fascinating to see if your area of expertise is public health, the road forward in public health may look similar to the road forward in other walks of international relations, whether that's economic or... So I think that's kind of fascinating too. Yes. Very well said. Um, So I think we've solved the public health problems by reading this article and discussing it. Well, I just just want to say uh, this, the dean... Uh, Ashish Jha. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very, very good article. Uh, it's a necessary article. I'm glad Foreign Affairs published it. And the Foreign Affairs, uh, they publish a scholarly, well-thought-out journals. And and I'm sure everyone is not going to, gonna, everyone's not going to agree with these, uh, these uh, men and women that publish in these journals. Uh, but uh, they are based on knowledge and their perspective and their view and their learned view and also their experience in the area. And so uh, if other people, other learned people, people with experience in the area uh, will have different views, well, that's what these journals are for. Mm-hmm. Bring these views to the table. Because uh, just like uh, just like when you do research, you need to get a lot of intelligent people together and you can play off of each other to solve a, a, a scientific problem. The same thing with these kinds of journals. You bring people together, you can play off of each other. Not one person knows everything. Mm-hmm. and But every person has, every knowledgeable person that has uh, a focus and ability Every person has something to contribute. And I think and so that we, all, we all need to work together. We are not public health. We're not employed in the public health sector. But I think that by sitting down and taking an hour here to, to listen to what Ashish Jha has to say about his assessment of the system, where it needs to go, where it's been, we've informed ourselves more than the average American about public health in America today. And I think that's a good no. thing. I think if the average American informs themselves, takes it upon themselves to be informed from the experts rather than the pundits, I think we can have a better America Mm -hmm. and we can have a better world. And And it's all about education. Be educated from those who know, not from those who are trying to uh, earn a buck by inflaming people uh, with with misinformation. Mm-hmm. So 
Before we close, I would just like to read from this issue of Foreign Affairs. This is the editor's note, Gideon Rose. He, this is his final issue as editor. And he says that Foreign Affairs was founded in the wake of World War I by Americans who believed that with great power came great responsibility. The United States could not hide from the world. It had to engage intelligently and constructively. That required a space for informed public discussion. And that meant starting a magazine. George Kennan captured the vision of the new publication in his obituary for Hamilton Fish Armstrong, the magazine's dominant figure. And here's a quote. A forum for the opinions of others, expressing no opinion of its own. A place for fact, for thought, for calmly reasoned argument, with no room in its columns for polemic, for anger, for personal attack. A literary tone that would be quiet and serious, but never pretentious. Importance as the main criterion in the selection of material, whether the importance was to come from the significance and originality of the subject matter, or from the author, the authority of the author. But no concessions to any would-be contributor, humble or great, when it came to clarity of thought, significance of content, and moderation of language. That was the vision for Foreign Affairs, and that is why we use Foreign Affairs for some of our podcast episodes, because it's one of the best, I think, public forums for discussion on various issues of the day that exist in America. Yeah, well, David, I like the format that we have in this Sons of Sequoia podcast. And uh, I wish that more people would use this. Mm-hmm. Go to the experts and actually see exactly what they say uh, and and discuss it. We can have our opinion, but don't have our opinion uh, replace and take the place of the experts. Yes. And so with that, I think we can conclude this episode. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good to me. Um, Thanks for tuning in, everyone. This has been a discussion of foreign affairs. Uh, The article called System Failure by Ashish Jha in the March-April 2021 issue. We urge you all to subscribe to Foreign Affairs if you found this discussion uh, stimulating. And you can sort of read the articles and have discussions with people that you respect about the various merits of these issues on your own. And I think it'll be healthy for you. So as we conclude today, is there anything you'd like to say to the people out there? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you, uh, appreciation to Ashish Jha with his article. It was very good. And also appreciation to Foreign Affairs and also appreciation to Gideon Rose as he's leaving. So the Sons of Aquarius say, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what other people are saying. Bye. Bye.